0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. I'm Kat Johnson, host of Meet and Three. This week, we're spotlighting another show that's new to HRN. It's called Fields. If you recently listened to Meet and Three's episode, Planting the Seed, you got a taste of what hosts Melissa Metrick and Wythe Marshall are bringing to the table in their conversation about seeds and time travel. Fields brings us the stories of people who are working in urban agriculture, for money, for fun, to feed the hungry, and for entirely other reasons. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast or even a foodie. Melissa and Wythe break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. They investigate the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the shadow of skyscrapers. They talk to people offering mutual aid, creating art with plants, and teaching the next generation how to garden. In episode five, which we're sharing today, the show takes a close look at mushrooms. Melissa and Wythe ask why mushrooms are so popular recently. Who is growing them and searching for them in the wild in New York City? You'll hear from a whole bunch of fungi-focused folks, including a vertical farmer, an entrepreneur, an expert forager, and a mushroom club organizer. We hope you enjoy and subscribe to Fields wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find links to the series in our show notes. We'll see you next week for another episode of Meat and Three, all about corn.
2: You're listening to Fields, the podcast with
3: Melissa Metrick
2: and wife Marshall. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working to grow the field of urban agriculture for money, for fun, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or for entirely other reasons. In each episode, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in and around New York City or another city, one technology used to grow the food, or one critical element inside of it. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. One note, we've been working on this podcast now for over a year, taping a lot of interviews with wonderful farmers and other experts. That means that some material predates COVID-19. We're still including it because these conversations are as important as ever, maybe more so. This is the sound of mushrooms growing, well, indirectly. It's Digital Love by Daft Punk, being played on the cello by Andrew Carter. Carter co-founded Smallhold, New York's only certified organic mushroom farm.
3: Smallhold builds and operates miniature vertical farms that grow different kinds of fancy mushrooms, like oysters and lion's mane, inside restaurants or grocery stores. They're even in Whole Foods, and yet Smallhold is only a couple of years old. You could say it's been a busy time for Andrew, He doesn't get to play the cello as much as he used to. Andrew came to grow mushrooms professionally via plants, and ecology in general. But he also came to them via music.
2: Today, we're going to tell the story of how he became a mushroom farmer in New York City. We're also going to tell the stories of other professional mushroom growers and foragers in the city. It tastes like jerky.
4: Nice texture. Okay, to to me, it's sort of more like gummy bears.
3: Okay, so how did Andrew's cello proficiency lead into a new career as a mushroom farmer?
5: So my, my uh, father had a house in Westchester, and um, it's in the base, it's in Mount Kisco. It's a really beautiful house. We were restoring it. It was a really fun part. I was there pretty often. We had this big basement, and I started growing oyster mushrooms in the basement. It looked crazy. Like it looked like I was making drugs. There was like plastic everywhere. It was in like a math scientist lab. And this was like three three years ago. I would bring people. Like I would be like fixing the oil tank or something, and people would like go down there and they wouldn't ask. They wouldn't ask any questions. which is the funny thing. I'm like, do you want to know about it? And they're like, they're like, no, no, no. And then I'm like, we're not. There's these aren't drugs. This is just oyster mushrooms. Um, and, they, but like, uh, we figured out a bunch of different stuff and were like, you know, figured out that like there's a lack of technology, that like people want these kinds of things. I was talking to different chefs here in the city and people were really into the idea. Uh, it was around that same time that um, this group, North Brooklyn Farms, is building their new spot across from uh, their old spot, the Domino Factory. And I went to high school with one of them, uh, Ryan. And so we grabbed a beer and I was just like, I was like, this is crazy. Like, can I build a mushroom farm and a fruit farm? And he's just like, yeah, dude, let's do this.
3: But we wanted to know how Andrew got started. We talked a lot about his time in college studying ecological design with John Todd, who is one of the founders of that discipline. And then he got involved with hydroponic growing or growing without soil.
5: Before this, I was consulting on a few different projects, different hydroponic and indoor ag sort of stuff. That's been my background for the last eight or nine years now. I had always kind of been been interested in the mushroom industry, um, but what was happening, What we would do these analyses for different cities and try to find different markets and, and understand for crops that it would make sense to grow in different cities and realize that mushrooms had a really good opportunity. Even three or four years ago, there was an increase in demand in exotics it's not as much as it is now, but, I mean, it, it's, it's, been, it's only been increasing since then. And so I've always kind of thought it was interesting. In the U.S., the majority of mushroom production are buttons, in Portobello and cremini. Yep. That's mostly done in Pennsylvania. Anything outside of that is considered an exotic, right. as far as the, the producers and the buyers are concerned. Yeah. Um, nice. So shiitake, oysters, um, lion's mane, all the, all the stuff that people are actually really into right now, in my opinion are considered exotics if you're talking to, like, a, a produce buyer.
3: We asked Andrew why he thought exotic mushrooms became popular recently.
5: Vegetarian diets became pretty um, popular. People are thinking about how to restructure how they eat. I think the big thing that happened over the last couple of years is this, like, foods and medicine trend. And so there were a lot of businesses that came out making, like, mushroom pills and additives and all this stuff. And then, like really brought into the, the limelight all these other varieties that people could eat.
3: So what does Smallhold actually make?
5: What we have are these, um, we, we call them growth chambers, but they're small vertical farms that go inside uh, grocery stores and restaurants and allows them to grow really fresh produce on site and we focus on mushroom production. What it has is a sensor system and a remote management system inside of it. It's this technology that we developed that allows us to remotely do everything. And so we have a system with Whole Foods, for example. Their staff doesn't ever have to look at a screen or understand how to grow anything because it's communicating with us here at our offices, and we can alter any of the, the recipes if necessary.
3: And the growth chambers look cool. They really show off mushroom growing visually.
5: The units have different footprints because we're trying out different sizes. You know, we we have the opportunity to test different things. Um, But they have, like, sort of space-age windows. They're generally white. We usually use this kind of nice, uh, shiny white plastic on the outside. Think of, like, an iPod, but for mushrooms. The lights inside are usually blue LEDs, and that's um, for the mushrooms themselves. They respond really well to that.
3: So the unit does a lot of work, and Smallhold provides a farming service in a way.
5: What we do is we centralize, the, we call it the pre-growth, but it's essentially like the first three-quarters of growth um, with farms or with people that already have really large operations. And then we just fi- finish on-site. And so we grow the final part where it, uh, the fresh produce is exposed and it's where it's really, um, it, it's really delicate and it can be damaged. Um, and that means that the food's never damaged in transit, it's really fresh on site, it's all the benefits of being locally grown, but it's more affordable because if you did it all on site, it's really difficult to do anything on a small scale.
3: But wait, wasn't this a story about cello and how cello playing led to a mushroom farm?
5: So I grew up playing cello and I like, played cello and had all these like YouTube videos and random cello stuff from years ago. So and you were
3: like a cello star? <laughs> on YouTube? I
5: was—I don't know if it was a star, but you guys can look it up and you can find my my cello chops.
2: <laughs>
5: this woman reached out and they're uh, they having this wedding in Red Hook, and um, they're like, "Can you play a Daft Punk song And we walk down the aisle on cello?" And I was just like, and it was a, a looping thing, and I was like. Uh, I don't know if I want to play a wedding. And so I went and reached out to a couple of my friends, but they do all these uh, weddings, too, or DJs. And they were like, oh, um, well, yeah, you know, you just, you, just, you know, you just charge whatever. He was calling it something else, but it's like the screw-off price, essentially, where you don't want to do it, but if they accept it, then you're, you're going to make pay, a lot of money. you to do it. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, like two thousand bucks to play. It was, I don't know, it's a lot. Of, it was like, yeah, know if it's a, a lot of money. And um, I was like, two thousand bucks, and they were like, sure. <laughs> <So> Thirty, 30 <laughs> seconds of play that point song and walk down the aisle. Um, they paid me two thousand bucks, and then went and bought a shipping container, and then put that at Northwood Farms.
3: Find out more at smallhold.com.
2: Andrew has a pretty pragmatic view of exotic mushrooms, which makes sense. He's been growing them for a long time. He's probably less excited and also less worried about his grows are than when he first started. Regina Bellows, on the other hand, is a newbie shroom farmer. So quick note, Regina is no longer running this farm. Uh, This interview is actually a little bit old, but we wanted to include it because we think it gets at some of the really cool themes we're looking at in this episode. Why are people so into mushrooms? How do they go about learning more about growing them? And how does this turn into sort of a business, her lifestyle? So yeah, just keep that in mind and wish Regina all the best in her new pursuits. And thanks a lot.
6: So uh, I built my farm in the back of a warehouse. It's a 2,000 square foot warehouse and you basically walk past a wood shop and a storage space to get to the room in the back. The room is about 300 square feet, and half of that is, makes up the actual grow room itself. The grow room is completely lined with, you know, water, safe material. I'm constantly wiping it down from mold and other things that the mushrooms release, like their're spores. They grow on these shelves that I've created out of, basically out of metal poles. And there's like maybe six shelves all the way to the ceiling on either side of the grow room. Um, and the mushrooms sit on the shelves in, uh, in plastic bags that's full of mycelium. So I poke holes in the, in the bags and then the fruit, the fruits of the mycelium comes out and that's what we
2: eat. She was actually inspired directly by Smallhold.
6: I got my hands on some blue oyster mushrooms from Smallhold. And I sort of tore them apart and put them on a pan, and they ended up looking like steak and tasting like, well, they taste like really delicious mushrooms and feeling like calamari in my mouth. And I was just like, love at first taste. What I quickly realized was I couldn't actually buy these mushrooms. Mm. So I decided I'll just start a mushroom farm. I'll get a bunch of all-you-can-eat mushrooms for myself.
2: This was no problem for Smallhold.
6: I came across them at the Food Loves Tech conference two years ago, and I got to see the mushrooms actually growing. One of them, either Adam or Andrew, said, we just can't grow enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I believed him. And actually, he was right. I, there's more demand than I could supply.
2: Regina is a DIYer, a true millennial. She left Arizona for New York City, switched careers, and started working in urban farms. And then switched again to be an actual farmer full-time.
6: It was a rabbit hole that I think started with my love for herbal tea. I accidentally fell in love with this uh, specific herbal tea and wanted to um, grow everything all of the ingredients in the tea, just as a hobby thing. It's this blend of tea um, called Brain Buzz, and this woman creates this blend, and I'm just in love with her stuff. She's in Arizona, actually, and it's called Herbescent. I I kind of got into gardening, and because I was in Arizona at the time, it was not easy. Like, I could not... I actually discovered I couldn't grow those things. Mm. So I ended up on a lot of gardening blogs trying to figure out how to grow these things in the desert. It was hard, and impossible in the end to grow most of them. But this started kind of a rabbit hole where I actually learned about how the bees were dying. Um, And then from there, uh, stumbled across, I think it was actually the agriculture blog. He talked about uh, vertical farms. And I was like, I just saw massive images of massive farms in my mind. And then I I ran across a another blog that said, no, no, we're about a hundred years out from any vertical farm existing. So I put the whole thing away for like five years. And then I happened across cross an AeroFarms um, video on my Facebook and just like pivoted careers, drove to New York City. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Within like months, I was like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> wow.
2: She built her farm herself with help from her parents.
6: Basically, I was... Looking, I, I was jobless in January. I decided to start a mushroom farm and I was looking and looking and looking and looking for space. No one would listen to me. I'm a little girl who wants to grow mushrooms and they were like, not in my space, little girl. You, you get your startup out of here. That sounds messy. I was at an, I was at an open house, to X, Ran into Jonas who I had volunteered with at Farm One. Oh, he invited oh. me to a party on his roof where I met a girl and just became friends with her. Get this, like first friend I make. <laughs> she invites me over to her house. Her landlord who owns the building takes me on the tour and he shows me this back room and he's like, I think I'm gonna start renting this room out. I'm gonna... It was filled with crap. And I was like, you wanna rent it to me so I can start a mushroom farm? And he was like, okay. My yeah. parents flew out with um, a suitcase full of tools. Wow. Um, we had extra tools because of the um, wood Fish. shop here, which is nice. And they spent three weeks with me.
2: Yeah, yeah, you have really cool parents. Next, Regina had to learn how to farm.
6: I had read somewhere uh, online that you could do. Um, a, a relatively small mushroom operation and make a profit at it and I ended up also buying a, a course that taught me how to start a low-tech mushroom farm. What's really great about that course is once you go through all the modules you, um, you end up having a community of other people that are also starting mushroom a mushroom farm all over the world on Facebook. We get to ask each other questions and you have a lot of questions. <laughs>
2: But one question Regina didn't seem to have was why grow indoors. That seemed to sort of answer itself.
6: I'm an indoor girl. Okay. And that's because my passion for urban farming comes from um, the need to get ourselves off of the off of nature. <laughs> like yeah. we need to quarantine ourselves because we're destroying it. So um, agriculture, the way we've been doing it, has killed so much wildlife Mm -hmm. and it's just it's very unsustainable. Um, We are animals that live in boxes in the sky in cities and we're finding that to be much better for the environment so we might as well put our food in boxes in the sky in cities.
2: Except there was another reason why Regina was so into mushrooms. It all came down to taste.
6: I used to make the most amazing portobello burgers and that I think is what made me really fall in love with mushrooms first then I discovered blue oysters and roasting them and caramelizing them so that you get them real hot on one side, and real hot on the other, and get them off so that they're still nice and like calamari-like. But then, then I discovered roasting, <laughs> oh. which is the ultimate way to do mushrooms. And now I just roast my mushrooms all the time. Any variety, I chop them all up, roll them in oil, throw them in the oven for about a half an hour. They shrivel and they get kind of crunchy. Yeah, I salt them when they come out, and it's just like candy. Like, I don't even put them on anything half the time. I just eat them. At the market, I feel like I'm single-handedly educating the public that roasting is better than sauteing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Why I'm is like, it? Because it removes the water, so it's a nicer texture?
6: Yeah, I think so. They, they become kind of crunchy, so some people don't like mushrooms because they can be slimy if you overcook them on, yes. on the stove. Yep. This is how it goes at the market. I'm like, hi, how are you? How are you, how are you uh, planning to cook your mushrooms? And they're like, oh, I'm going to saute them. And then I say, you should try roasting. <laughs> this is what I do all day long. This is my job.
2: So if you want to talk about the best way to cook mushrooms at the market or bees, Regina knows a lot about bees, you can find her in Park Slope. Follow her on Instagram at the underscore farm room.
1: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. This holistic crop management curriculum and training opportunity is in partnership with Certified Naturally Grown. Growing a viable farm business is sustained by continuous learning of the land and your products. In this workshop series, growers across Southern Appalachia and beyond will gain tools to manage their crop production for whole farm success. Organic Grower School is offering the holistic crop management training as a six-part webinar series. It will include a mixture of videos, resources, and live virtual meetings between March 23rd and April 27th. Learn more, meet the instructors, and register now at organicgrowerschool.org.
2: <laughs> You're listening to the smooth sounds of Wild Man the Brillophone. Never heard of the Brillophone? That's because it's an instrument made out of the cheeks of Wild Man Steve Brill. And when I say wild, I don't mean like Caveman Wild. But he is pre-agricultural in his own words.
4: Walking to the car. There was uh, about five pounds of bluets. It's a blue mushroom, nude. I can show it to you yeah. in, the other, in the other room.
2: We're at Wildman's house, which doesn't sound very wild, except you can probably hear in the background our other companion, Wisteria. Like Regina, Wildman has a passion for cooking. It's inspired him to seek out new foods. He also really likes chocolate. So woods ear, yeah. Should I just grab one and yes, pop it in? Yes, cool.
4: thank you so much. They have like a texture of gummy bears, try. and I've seasoned them with chocolate. I pureed the chocolate with uh, chickpeas, white miso, mm. uh, a few dates, and some pine nuts, and then I baked them. It's good. And these are not just edible mushrooms. No. I think they're as good as any wild mushroom you're ever going to get,
2: Steve or we have to call him wild man is probably the premier forager in new york city that means he knows where a lot of edible plants and fungi are all over parks and the side of the street and the yard in front of his house
4: i do uh hundreds of tours every year right. saturday sundays and holidays with the public um uh scouts uh teaching farms, museums, nature centers, land trusts.
2: Melissa and I wanted to know why Wildman became so wild. How did he learn all about plants and fungi without a formal training? Well, I was bicycle
4: riding for exercise. And there was these ethnic Greek women, this is in Queens, picking something. I stopped and asked them what they were doing. Unfortunately, I couldn't understand a word. It was all Greek to me. (laughs) But they did show me grape leaves and managed to convey what they were. And I came home with them and stuffed, made an unconventional stuffing. And they were delicious. Then I started getting books on wild food, um, usually written by botanists that wouldn't know what a kitchen was if it fell on their head, (laughs) with third-hand information, because they didn't forage.
3: Yeah. Oh wow.
4: And I had to
2: figure out everything on my own. And Wildman really knows his stuff. He's written five books on the subject. And when we visit, he's working on an app.
4: So this is my this is my illustration. Oh, that's beautiful. So it has the leaves like the carrot top, and it has um, a flower called Queen Anne's lace. Yes. In its second year, its first year, spring, early spring, and
2: fall, is when you dig up the root. Wildman also has a lot of practical tips about poison.
4: Look how similar it looks to the carrot. Oh, yeah, it does. It looks very similar. If you eat this, it stops your brain from telling your heart to beat.
2: I guess it's a big deal when you're a forager. You don't want to eat something that's going to make you sick. So he takes us to his collection of mushroom sculptures. It's this big closet. They're all from life samples. So he finds mushrooms in the wild. And then he tries to immortalize them so that he can teach others about them. Because mushrooms don't keep very long once you pick them.
4: These guys, one, two, three, four, five, six, they're Amanitas. The Amanitas grow on the ground near trees. They're symbiotic with trees. Okay. They all have white gills.
3: Ah.
4: There's a little space between the gills and the stem. Uh, Even though it's in this deadly group, they do eat this in France, and it's apparently one of the few non-poisonous ones. Whether it's the exact same species in North America as it is in Europe is open to question. Really? You'd have to do a DNA comparison. Yes. Which isn't that hard. You just ask
2: the mushroom to pull down its genes. Wildman's jokes and snacks never really stop.
4: Another puffball, another one. This one already is uh, too mature to eat, and if you squeeze it, spores come out. Ah, okay. So and, um, Linnaeus, therefore, called the genus Lycoperdon, which means wolf fart. <laughs> <laughs> he was, people had a sense of yeah. humor in the, in the uh, uh, 16th century. Yeah. <laughs>
2: We ask Wildman about other foragers, and he tells us stories of people he's not friends with. And then he tells us a long whopper about a friend, Joe Brandt, who is currently president of the Connecticut Westchester Mycological Association, acronym COMA.
4: But, uh, he's had his adventures, too. The guy's name is Joe. So one day he's driving along the road, and suddenly he sees a tree, on a, a dead tree on a lawn by a big house covered... With about ten pounds of oyster mushrooms, he says to himself, "There must be ten pounds of oyster mushrooms. I'm going to have them for dinner." He takes out his pocket knife, runs across the lawn past the house, cuts down the mushrooms, puts them in his bag, and starts driving back home. Five minutes later, pull over to the side of the road. So, state police, he pulls over to the side. Yes, officer. There is—is is there a problem? There sure is. We just got a call from the warden of the state prison and he saw someone running across his property with a knife. (laughs) Why were you trying to kill the warden? When did you escape from jail?
0: We're going to take you
4: back. You're not going to get out again. No, it was me, but I wasn't trying to kill anyone. I was just trying to pick these (laughs) mushrooms. I'm really sorry. All right, I'm going to let you go. Don't ever let that happen again. <laughs> wow. But two weeks go by. It rains like crazy. Mushrooms come up after the rain. And Joe happens to be driving down the same road. Oh, no. And suddenly on the same log, oh, on the same no, lawn by the same no. house, were 20 pounds of no. oyster mushrooms. But I don't want to go to prison. They might be worth it. <laughs> I'd rather just not go to prison. So he knocks on the door. And who should come out but the warden himself? Yes, sir, what can I do for you? Excuse me, I saw all these oyster mushrooms on your dead tree. I know they're edible. Would you mind if I took some home, please? And the warden thinks for a minute, scratches his head, and then a big smile lights up his face. Sure, go ahead. Have all the mushrooms you want. As a matter of fact, it was so nice of you to knock on the door and ask permission. You wouldn't believe the nerve of the last guy who found <laughs> mushrooms on the <laughs>
2: But the forager whom Wildman talks the most about by far is his daughter, Violet.
4: My daughter went when she was like eight because she she learned all the plants when she was growing up. Like the kid learns cucumbers, she learns wild carrots. She just entered high school. She's been co-leading my tours since she was nine oh, after wow. the tours and she finds all the plants faster than I do and she steals all my jokes. <laughs>
2: She was also faster to pick up the brillophone. You can get in touch with both Brills through wildmanstevebrill.com. Our final story today is of someone growing mushrooms for educational reasons, but also for deeply personal and really big ecological ones. It's kind of really inspiring. Melissa and I both really enjoyed talking with her. You know what? She can say it better than we can.
3: JJ, will you introduce yourself? My name is JJ. Um, I grow mushrooms at home. She would also like to be a mycologist one day, a scientist who studies mushrooms. But for now, she has created a mini lab in her closet. Like wild man Steve Brill, J.J. has some other goals as well. I guess my mission is to uh, reconnect city
7: people to nature um, from the mushroom perspective, because that's a lot um, I think we can learn from Mushrooms um and get inspired.
3: J.J. has a little bit more experience with mushrooms,
7: Mushrooms has, have always been in my life because I, I grew up in China and um, it's never something too special. You know, my mom always cooks uh, different mushrooms. We always have dried mushrooms in our um, kitchen. Um, and I did my first um, uh, trip to find mushrooms
3: in a forest more than a decade ago. Yet just recently, she started to learn how to grow mushrooms. Last year, I had time to take a workshop with uh, Peter McCoy, who wrote
7: the book uh, Radical Mycology. Um, So at the end of the workshop, every person got to pick uh, four liquid cultures. So I got mine and I looked at them. I was like, okay, you are all alive. I cannot kill you. (laughs) I have to do something. So in mushroom cultivation, we say um, move it or lose it. Hmm. So it's really, for
3: me, it's a responsibility to keep their life going. JJ has a little bit of a different perspective of mushrooms than our other guests. I think mushrooms are... My boss.
7: <laughs> um, well, I, I definitely don't think they are just products. Um, I, I do talk to them. You do? I do. I think um, about like, how I got into mushrooms um, was because I think um, I started just growing also herbs, like plants, and then I think the whole process, it was like uh, maybe two, three years of uh, journey. And it changed how I really look at other creatures. To me, we all belong to this bigger ecosystem, um, maybe different systems, but uh, I mean like now we are in the city, we belong to this city ecosystem. When we go to a forest, it's just like a, there are a lot of systems, ecosystems mm-hmm. around us. And I, I don't necessarily see the other like uh, animals, plants, fun- fungi being products. You know, we do our own things. Mm-hmm. We may not have the common languages, mm-hmm. but... They're just like, I don't know if eco is the word, but they, we, have, we, we definitely are connected some way. Yeah. Instead of like, we just manipulate, somehow trigger the environments, feed them so that I can get your um,
3: fruits. Yeah. JJ also connects with people and mushrooms through her workshops. There are two types. So one is
7: uh, it might be a, an organization they're interested in getting their o- audience uh, more familiar with uh, fungi or this this world. Um, so I I taught a workshop for a group of um, artists in the past. Um, And then a group of students say they are really interested in the future of agriculture. (laughs) Yeah, that's what you're doing. Um, So just get them inspired and interested and and curious. My goal is really not to dump a lot of information. Um, My goal is to get them so inspired that they want to dig deeper, further.
3: Yeah. JJ also has what she calls inoculation parties. And sometimes those inoculation parties get a little weird.
7: We had another inoculation party um, where we inoculated a brain. <laughs> a brain? <laughs> it's a brain shapes mode. And then, yeah, so the idea is to make a structure to just to discover or experiment with the structural ability of, um, of fungi to basically to show people another or some other ways to look at
3: fungi. JJ is hoping to continue her work next year on Governor's Island. I wrote a proposal for next year. So I want to do,
7: um, it's like an exhibit to show the fungi life cycle. And hopefully people can just look, touch, smell, and play. Um, so right now we're looking for, I need an indoor space. Yeah. So still figuring some details out. Yeah then we can use that as a platform. Hopefully I can also invite other mushroom peoples yeah. <laughs> to yeah. meet with um, and share their own work and projects mm-hmm. um, to the audience.
3: Just an update, JJ did have this project on Governor's Island at the Swale House in 2019. And if you'd like to learn more about it, it was called the Intelligent Fungi Series. And of course, we had to ask JJ about her favorite mushroom. Uh, there's
7: a mushroom called um, patty straw. It's very, it's, I think it's pretty common maybe in Asia. I love it because it reminds me of the chicken soup my mom made. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. she used to always make the, the soup and she would throw a bunch of mushrooms in the soup yeah. and it was the best.
3: So what have we learned about people who either forage or grow mushrooms? Why?
2: Uh, They all thought a lot about cooking mushrooms. And I'm not sure how much we're able to capture in the interviews. They also all thought about the environment. And I think they all uh, definitely dealt with the practicalities, the realities of mushrooms, and learning a lot about their life cycles, um, how they kind of act, what they like, don't like. Sort of how to keep them happy, which is weird because they're slow uh, and they're sort of boring looking um, (laughs) a lot of the time. I mean, mycelium—they're not
3: that boring. Mycelium
2: is just white junk. We saw—we
3: actually saw yellow and blue oyster mushrooms. That's true. And lion's mane. Those don't. Those don't look boring.
2: That's true. But I think, I think, uh, most of their life, you just have to care for like a big sack of white crap. (laughs) And then at the end, yeah, you get this spray, this bouquet of, of, yellow. Um, but yeah, I was just impressed by that, I guess that they, they had real commitments to thinking about, um, the environment and what better diets might look like for people who have traditionally eaten a lot of meat and are then considering mushrooms as this new, new thing, which of course they're not new. Yeah. Um, but they might be new to some eaters, uh, and they, they also, yeah, dealt with the material reality um, of something heavy and slow and just very, very different from a plant or a, a human. What did you learn? What, what did you uh, sort of find surprising or informative?
3: I definitely agree that they all kind of came or maybe came to mushrooms through this culinary way, right? So JJ grew up with mushrooms growing up in Shanghai, Um, wild man, Steve Brill really loved mushrooms, especially in like mushroom chocolate. Um, I would say Andrew actually, I don't know if Andrew talked about eating mushrooms that much, but
2: I'm sure he does. He definitely was very focused on business.
3: And then, uh, Regina definitely did. Oh yeah. She actually made me want to try all of those mushrooms and it seemed like that was her passion.
2: Yeah. And I definitely think people had different stories about um, how they thought of the same organism. So basically we focused on, you could say oyster mushrooms and, and almost everyone had a different way of narrating it, whether it was about um, focusing on sort of a product that has a certain value. Regina really focused on taste and how to cook them. And are you cooking them the best way? She was so excited about that. And then Wildman. Definitely gave us a lot of food, including some mushrooms. Um, but he, he, you know, he really lit up, I think, when we went to see his kind of magic, like collection of life specimens that he'd, he'd sculpted. And then I think, um, he, you know, all the stories came out. And I thought that was really telling that to him, these were amazing objects that kind of come and go. And you don't totally have control over it. It's the kind of thing someone says who's really into improv jazz and transcendental meditation. I mean, it, hmm. it sort of fit that he almost didn't want to grow them because why would you do that at all you just walk outside and whatever's outside that's what you eat
3: yeah it's like it's it's an adventure for him because even when he's just walking to the pool walking to go swimming or or exercising he's going to possibly run into these mushrooms right
2: and jj had a um i think we both were just so impressed with her take that was so focused in ecological thought and just saying that by caring for this organism, it's also sort of making me do things. So it's sort of, I described as a pet. She described it as a boss, which I thought thought was so interesting. It's these little spores oh, yeah. that move, she sort of viewed as her boss because if she didn't take care of them, they would die, and then she wouldn't get any mushrooms. Also, she would feel bad, and that sort of was the first. I think it was like the first I story she told. I think that was us.
3: the main was thing. Peter she would...
2: McCoy giving her, you know, liquid spores.
3: Yeah, and that they're this living thing. Yeah. that she was then um yeah just had to take care of this living thing and she couldn't let them die
2: right right absolutely
3: so mushrooms are products to grow because you could sell them but they are also unique living things that help you connect with other living things and of course mushrooms are delicious food plus we haven't even mentioned psychoactive mushrooms
2: We could devote whole episodes to each of these reasons for growing or seeking out exotic mushrooms in cities, and we probably will at some point. But for now, let's give the final word to JJ.
7: There's part of us, it's inside of us already, that we don't need to create or make additional so that people have it. It's inside of us. We just have to wake it up.
2: Thanks to our amazing guests, Andrew Carter, Regina Bellows, Wildman Steve Brill, and Ji Jin. And a big thanks to Andrew Carter for letting us use his amazing cello music.
3: Fields' theme music is by Sam Tindall.
2: Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio Network is Liam Warner.
3: Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter